0: So here we are. We're here to study the book of Revelation here on Sunday mornings. And I'm, I'm excited about studying Revelation together with you. I've been reading it for the past few months just over, uh, you know, on my own in my devotional time. Just happened to come to it in the natural course of my Bible reading. And then, you know, reading through it one time, I thought, you know, I want to go back and, and I want to read through it again. And, and each time I read through it, I'm just, uh, you know, I, I'm just so... Moved in my heart, and um, you know, I was thinking about it last night. I was thinking about you know what's really, what is the thing that that's speaking to me? And uh, interestingly, you know, it's it's not what people might think, uh, because of course it's full of prophecy and it's full of future events and all of these kinds of things. And all of those things are uh, fascinating and exciting, and we're going to get into all of them. But you know, the thing that's standing out to me as I read the book is just the greatness of God. And, and this book, like, like no other book in the Bible, really displays the greatness of God and of course, uh, the glory of Jesus Christ. So that's, that's the thing that we're gonna really be focusing on as we make our way through Revelation. So our primary purpose in studying the book of Revelation is not so much to find uh, contemporary, Uh, events or trends that support the belief that the book is about to be fulfilled, although we will engage in that to some extent, our main purpose is to see Jesus Christ in all of his glory and majesty as he brings forth his judgment upon this world and ultimately establishes the kingdom of God. That's the the big themes that we're going to be uh, focusing on as we go through. Now, as we as we look at the book of Revelation, one of the things that you're going to see is that the book of Revelation, of course, is a book of prophecy, and therefore it is much more uh, like an Old Testament book than it is uh, like a New Testament book. Uh, it's like you're reading uh, through Isaiah or through Ezekiel or through Daniel or through Zechariah. It's, it's very uh, much like that in its feel. And it really is the, the book in the Bible where, where everything culminates. And all of these different things that have, that have been spoken of from the very beginning, from the book of Genesis all the way through, they all kind of just come to their climactic uh, point in the book of Revelation. And that's uh, understandable because it really is the book of the, the consummation Of all things. Genesis, of course, is the book of beginnings, and Revelation is, uh, if you will, it's the book of the end, but it's not uh, the end as we would think about it, because the end is actually the beginning of an entirely new thing. So that's what we're going to see as we uh, make our way through the book. Now, our approach, I'm just giving you a little bit of an overview here, real quickly, but our approach to studying the book will be different on Sunday morning than it is on Wednesday evening. So uh, just so you know that, um, what's, what's happening here on Sunday morning is going to be uh, distinct in that we're just going to be taking a few verses from each chapter and preaching uh, topically. And then on Wednesday night, we're going to be looking at the entire chapter, most of the time one chapter, but on a few occasions, we will uh, probably do um, a few more than than just one chapter. So, so all of that to say, uh, you can come Sunday morning and Wednesday night, and it'll be uh, considerably different. Um, so, don't worry uh, that you know it's going to be the same message. It, it will be different. Wednesday night we'll will get a little more detailed. We're going to look at you know every verse, and we'll. Uh, talk about things in more depth than we do here on Sunday morning. So that's kind of the plan as we make our way through the book of Revelation. So this morning, our uh, our text is, is the one that we read, and, and our scripture reading each Sunday morning will be uh, the passage that we're going to cover. And so I want you to notice, looking back over the verses that we read, I want to start with Uh, just drawing your attention to the third verse where we are told, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep the things which are written in it. So this is the only single book of the Bible where there's a, a blessing promised upon the reader, the hearer, and the assumption, of course, in both cases is that they're going to Keep what's written in here. Now you can say over all of Scripture there is that promise: uh, "Blessed is the man who delights in the law of the Lord, and in His law he meditates day and night." Psalm one tells us there's a blessing for those who meditate in the Word of God. But this is the only single book that pronounces a blessing upon those who um, who read it and those who hear it. And the reason there's a distinction between reading and hearing here is because in the early days of the church they they didn't have individual copies of the scripture like we do today. Today, of course, thank God, we've got, every one of us have a Bible or 10. And uh, back in those days, I'm thinking of the 10 Bibles I have on my desk. Uh, But back in those days, not everybody had their own copy of the scriptures. So they would gather together congregationally and the scriptures would be read by a reader. And then, of course, there would be the, the congregation that would be listening. So uh, the blessing is pronounced upon uh, both those who read, and some translations add the word aloud. They read it aloud, and then also upon those who hear it. And I I promise you that that is indeed going to be the case. And I want to encourage you um, to do your best to try to to be engaged with both Sunday morning and Wednesday night. But also, I want to encourage you to read through uh, the Book of Revelation. Uh, throughout our time of studying it together. I I don't think you can actually read it enough. You just, you know, as we are going over it over the next few months and you make your way personally through it, there's the guaranteed blessing that will come um, as a result of that, according to what the text itself tells us. Now, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ as we read here in verse 1, which God gave him to show his servants, things which must shortly take place, and he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant, John. And then as uh, we look at verse four, John to the seven churches which are in Asia. So John is the human instrument through which the the book was was brought to uh, the church. And this is the John that we read about in the Gospels, who was the son of Zebedee, he was the brother of James, he was the close friend of Peter and Andrew, and he was a part of that initial group of young men who uh, began to follow Jesus. And I was just thinking about how interesting it is that John was the one who was to receive the revelation. You know, when we, when we look at the New Testament, we know that um, when it comes to the epistles, the instruction, the Apostle Paul wrote uh, the majority of epistles in the New Testament. Uh, the Apostle uh, John, of course, wrote the Gospel of John, and then he wrote three uh, small letters, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. But then he is the one who's given the, uh, the commission to write this revelation down. And when you think of who John was in relation to Jesus, I think it's, it's quite interesting to consider that he uh, was that person. There was an occasion, maybe you remember reading this, there was an occasion where Peter was told by Jesus. This is at the end of the gospel of John. Uh, Jesus tells Peter that he's going to die for his faith. And Peter, John is in the vicinity. uh, Peter sort of points toward John and says to Jesus, well, what about him? And Jesus said this, he says, what is it to you? If, if, um, he remain until I come, that's, that's really not your business, he says. He says, you follow me. But it's interesting that, that Jesus said that. Now, some people interpreted, John tells us this in his gospel, some people interpreted from that that John was not gonna die. He was gonna live on until he saw the coming of the Lord. But John makes it clear that that's not what Jesus said. He just said, what if uh, he remains until I come? What is that to you? But it's interesting that John, in a sense, did not die till he saw the coming of the Lord, because that's what he saw in this vision here in the book of Revelation. And so John is uh, the one who seemed to understand better than anyone else uh, the reality that Jesus was... um, God in human flesh. You remember, he he spells all of that out in the first chapter of his gospel. And the word was with God. The word was God in the beginning was the word, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so John understood that in his first epistle, he writes and he says, uh, speaking of the word, he says that which we have seen and that which we have heard and that which our hands have handled and that word of life. And, and so you know, John, John really. Understands that. He he really seems to grasp this um, incarnation that Jesus is actually uh, God in human form. And then I think of John, who most people feel was probably the youngest of the apostles. And some commentators would put him at uh, the age of maybe 17, 18, 19 or so uh, when he began to follow the Lord. Uh, we know that John had a, a real intimate relationship with Jesus. John uh, refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. John talks about having uh, leaned on the breast of Jesus at the, what we commonly call the Last Supper there. But I think of John as this young man who is uh, in business with his brother James and his father Zebedee, they're fishermen. And I think of how this young man, he, at a certain point in time, he, he leaves his uh, nets on the shores of the Sea of Galilee to never return, and he follows Jesus. And he follows him so closely, so deeply, so intimately, that much later in life that 's where we are now, uh, he ends up being exiled to the island of Patmos by the Roman authorities because of his testimony for the gospel and here he is on this deserted island, this island's about forty miles off the western coast of Turkey, even today the the entire population of Uh, Patmos is just over a couple of thousand people, so it was probably much less back then. But there he is at an old age. Most scholars believe that John was quite old when he received this revelation. But here he is in this barren, desolate, and lonely place, and it's here that he receives the greatest prophetic word of all. And, you know, I think that in and of itself is something for us to just think about for a second. Um, We find ourselves sometimes in a barren place. We find ourselves in a desolate place sometimes. We find ourselves in a lonely place. And we think at those times, you know, we're tempted sometimes to feel like God has even abandoned us. But, you know, it could be in that place that God might speak to you and reveal things to you greater than anything you've previously known. So, so don't despise those kinds of situations. Know that it very well could be uh, the opportunity that God's gonna use to um, speak a fresh word into your life. And, and that's what happened with John. He receives here the greatest uh, prophetic revelation that was ever given to any person because all of the prophecies uh, culminate in this one prophecy. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Some of the old versions of the Bible, uh, I've even seen ones that say the revelation of Saint John the Divine. Uh, But the book is called The Revelation of Jesus Christ, or literally in the Greek, the Apocalypsis. And the word apocalypse, that we translate apocalypse into revelation, the word apocalypse means Uh, the unveiling or the the full disclosure. And so what we have in this book is uh, the full disclosure, Jesus of Nazareth, the carpenter, is none other than the Lord of glory. And that's what the book of Revelation is making crystal clear. You know, still to this very day, people think, in, uh, think of Jesus often, many people think of Jesus just in terms of, a, of another person. He's a, you know, just another human being. He was a person who maybe did have some uh, extra insight spiritually to things or a person who maybe was close to God or in some cases, well, Jesus was a prophet. But Revelation makes it clear to us that Jesus was uh, much more than that. He is nothing less than the Lord of glory. And so we're gonna focus on uh, verses four through eight here now as we move on beyond uh, that introduction. But just a quick word on uh, John to the seven churches, which are in Asia. We'll talk more about this on Wednesday night. But the seven churches, just understand it as this is written to the church in its entirety. That's what seven uh, symbolizes. The, The number seven is the number of completion and especially in the Book of Revelation, when you find seven, that's what's being referred to because it's all through the Book of Revelation. You you begin here with uh, the the seven churches, and you've got the seven spirits, and then you've got um, the. Um, seven uh, seals and the seven trumpets and the seven bulls and the seven angels. And over and over again in this book, we're going to find seven. And it's always speaking of completion or totality. And so this is written to the church in its totality. And so the salutation, grace to you in peace from him who is and was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ. So right here up front, we have this this salutation, this greeting from, notice, the triune God. Right here in the book of Revelation, in the very first few verses, it's, it's clear that God is triune. And so we have that that salutation from the Father, the one who is, who was, and who is to come, from the Spirit, the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ. This is the only place in the New Testament where the order uh, of the members of the Trinity is rearranged. In every other place where you have a Trinitarian formula presented in, in the New Testament, it's always, the order is always the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But only in this place is it the Father, the Spirit, and the Son. People have wondered, well, why is the order switched here? And I think the order is switched here because the emphasis here is on the humanity of the Son and on the fact that He is the one who is crowned as the king over all things. So I think it's just simply because of that, that the order is changed. But just a couple of quick words on the way uh, both the Father and uh, the Spirit are described. So the Father is described here as the one who is, who was, and who is to come, or was and is and is to come. And what you have there is a description of the self Existence and the eternality of God. This is the only place also in the New Testament where you find God being described in this way. And it harkens back to the way God spoke of himself when he revealed himself, all the way back to the patriarchs and specifically to Moses in Exodus chapter three. Maybe you remember the story, Moses comes upon this bush that's burning. And he realizes that it's the Lord and God speaks to him. Take off your shoes from your feet. This is holy ground and so forth. And God God commissions Moses, you know, to go to Pharaoh and to deliver the people of Israel from their captivity. And Moses says, who do I, okay, when I go, who do I say sent me? And the Lord said, say that I am hath sent you. And the Hebrew word I am there is I am the one who was and is and is to come. So here in the book of Revelation, we're seeing how all of, all of the revelation from Genesis all the way through, it's all tied together. So God is here presenting himself in the same fashion that he revealed himself to Moses, the one who was and is and is to come. And then the seven spirits, so again, the number of seven is completion. So here, the idea is the, the fullness of the Spirit. And uh, again, when we look more in depth at the chapter on Wednesday night, we'll talk about uh, why, why the seven, what, what, what that means, and show a, a corresponding uh, passage in Isaiah that gives a, a little bit of insight into what's being talked about here. But then thirdly, the salutation is from Jesus Christ, the God-man, And then he's described as the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler over the kings of the earth. And so these are the things that I really want to focus on as well as a few others. First of all, Jesus is spoken of here as the faithful witness. The faithful witness, Jesus is the faithful representation of God. He's the faithful witness. He showed us perfectly, exactly who God is. And the New Testament states that many times over. Jesus himself declared that. You remember in the 14th chapter of John, uh, as Jesus is speaking to his disciples and um, at a certain point, uh, Philip says, Lord, show us the Father. And, and then we'll be happy. We'll be satisfied. Jesus said, Philip, have I been with you so long that you haven't recognized me? He that has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not know that the Father is in me and I am in him? So Jesus himself declared that he was, if, if you see him, you've seen the Father. And of course, the other writers in the New Testament said the same thing. We Perhaps uh, you remember the passage in Hebrews that reminds us of that, speaking of Christ, that he is the brightness of God's glory in the exact representation of his person. Jesus went on to say that both his words and his works Uh, were the result of the father who was dwelling in him. John uh, 14, 10, he said, the words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own, but the father who dwells in me does the works. And then that great text in the first chapter of the gospel of John, verse 18, no one has ever seen God. The one and only son, the one who is at the father's side, he has revealed him. So you see, Jesus is the faithful witness. He is the one who came and he showed us who God is. And if you are wondering who God is, if you're wondering what God is like, then just open the pages of the New Testament and read the gospels and you will see for yourself, this is what God is like. That's what the gospels are. They are a presentation to us of who God is and what he's like. You know, oftentimes we are maybe in conversation with a person and maybe we're, we're, you know, seeking to share the Lord with them. And sometimes we feel sort of stumped as to, well, you know, what can I say to them or or what can I give them? And oftentimes we, you know, might give somebody a a little gospel track or we might even recommend a book, which I've done many times. But, you know, I think it would be wise if we, uh, first of all, just pointed them to the gospels, Just point them to the Gospels. And even though you could point them to any one of the Gospels, I usually point people to the Gospel of John. Because John tells us that he wrote his Gospel that people might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that in believing they might have life through his name. I was talking to a man earlier this morning, he was telling me about this ongoing conversation he has at the gym with a with a self-acclaimed agnostic. And um, he was sort of saying, what, what do you think I should do? Should I keep talking to him? And said, absolutely, keep talking to him. Uh, what do you think I might give him? I said, well, you know what? Why don't you just tell him, uh, challenge him. Why don't you read the Gospel of John? Because this is where you can find out what God is like. Because there he is, right on the pages, God in human flesh, Jesus, the faithful witness. Secondly, he is the firstborn from the dead. The firstborn from the dead. The, the word firstborn, it can refer to first in, in chronological order, and it can also refer to first in the sense of the most important or the greatest or the, uh, the preeminent. And in this case, I think it's actually both. Um, but in, in regard to the first chronologically, if you think about it, Jesus, in in one sense, wasn't the the first person to rise from the dead. You go back to the Old Testament, you find a couple of uh, examples in the Old Testament of people who were raised from the dead. And then, of course, you can find examples in the New Testament. You can find examples of Jesus raising people from the dead. But the common thing with every one of them is they were raised from the dead to die again. They all died again. Jesus, in contrast to that, Jesus was raised from the dead never to die again. You see, the difference between them and Jesus is that Jesus rose from the dead and is now presently in his glorified body and can never die again. So that resurrected body, that glorified body that every believer in Christ will one day receive, Jesus has already received it. And so we know, even as we read the resurrection accounts, We know that um, it was the same body that Jesus died in that he rose in, but there were obviously things that were different about it. It was a a glorified body. It still had the wounds from the suffering, but yet it was a different kind of a body, a body that could appear and disappear, a body that could pass through uh, walls and doors and so forth. So Jesus is the firstborn from the dead in the sense that he has already received that glorified body. At the right hand of God today, there is a man in a body that is glorified, a human body that is glorified. He's the firstborn from the dead, and he's the reminder for us that we will also likewise one day rise from the dead and be given that glorified body. And then, thirdly, it says concerning Jesus that He is the ruler over the kings of the earth. And I want you to notice the present tense. He is the ruler presently over the kings of the earth. You know, sometimes we uh, mistakenly think that that Jesus isn't ruling. No, He is even now. Now, His rule is not yet acknowledged. It's not yet manifested, as it will be. Of course, this book is all about the, the establishing of that rule. But make no mistake about it, Jesus is presently ruling. He is ruling. That, the, another way we put it is God is sovereign. God is sovereign over the affairs of the world. And even though things are chaotic in many uh, parts of the globe today, God is sovereign in that he is working out his eternal purposes, and no one can do anything that God doesn't allow them to do, that Jesus doesn't allow them to do, because he is presently the ruler over the kings of the earth. In the days that John wrote this, uh, many people believe it was during the reign of Domitian. Domitian uh, was intensely persecuting Christians. That's probably why John ended up on the island of Patmos. Uh, but it appeared to most people that Domitian was the the ruler over the earth, but no, the reality was Jesus was ruling then, and every period since then it 's all been the same. The Lord is sovereign, and if you really take a close look at history, uh, guess what things are going exactly the direction God said they would go, and we see that, and we will see that more clearly as we go through the book so He is the ruler over the kings of the earth presently. But of course, this book is taking us out to the time and the place when that becomes a universal reality, when everybody sees that to be the case. And Paul wrote about that in Philippians when he spoke of Jesus as the one who humbled himself, who, although he was in the form of God, did not consider it, Uh, Something to be held on to, to uh, hold on to that equality with God. But he humbled himself. He became of no reputation. He took upon himself the form of a servant and being found in the likeness of men. um, He humbled himself to the point of, of death, and not just death, but even the death of the cross. And because of this, Paul says, therefore, God has also highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The book of Revelation is all about that reality coming to uh, the entire universe. Jesus being made uh, publicly, if you will, uh, to be seen as the ruler over the kings of the earth. So John states this concerning Jesus. And then he breaks into a word of praise to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So as, as John thinks about God, the Father, the one who is and was and is to come, as he thinks about the fullness of the Spirit, as he thinks about Jesus, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, as he uh, thinks on him as the ruler of, over the kings of the earth, he, he then uh, He marvels and he bursts forth and prays that this God loves us. How do we know he loves us? Him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. That's how we know God loves us because he washed us from our sins. And there's a debate among scholars as to whether uh, he, he loved past tense or loves present tense. And the truth is both. It's both, right? He loved us And his great demonstration of love was the cross, washed us from our sins in his own blood. But of course, he loves us today. He didn't just love us back then. He loves us today. Never underestimate uh, the power of just that truth that God loves you, that Jesus loves you. You know, sometimes we we become so familiar with these these kinds of things, we, we forget how powerful this can actually be just the, the fact that God loves us. The fact that Jesus loves us. The fact that he knows everything about us. He knows all of our secret thoughts. He knows all of the things that we've done in the dark. He knows all of those things and he still loves us. And how do we know he loves us? Because he washed us. Or some translations read, he freed us from our sins. He did both. He washed us from our sins and he freed us. But how much does he love us? He did all of this with his blood. That's how much he loves us. Greater love has no one than this, Jesus said, that one would lay down his life for his friends and that's what he did for us. You know, maybe you're here today and maybe you're wondering about whether or not anybody loves you. Well, know this, Jesus loves you. He really does, and he showed how much he loves you by giving his life, by shedding his blood. Really quickly, I I read this story recently, uh, absolutely true story, uh, of a man who uh, in his younger days, he was a student at Cambridge University, and back in those days, D.L. Moody, the American evangelist, was going to come and speak at Cambridge, and the, the students at Cambridge were very offended that this uncouth Uh, inarticulate American was going to come and be allowed to speak to them. Moody had like a fourth grade education and he was, he was known, he was well known for literally butchering the English language. And uh, of course, he's going to England where the language was born. And uh, these young students at Cambridge, they didn't want to have anything to do with this. So these young men, a group of them, and this one particular guy was leading the group, uh, they decided that they were going to disrupt his uh, Efforts. So they sat in the front row in the auditorium and they were intending at a certain point to just jump up and start mocking and heckling him and so forth. And before any of that could happen, Moody walked out. And as he began his introduction, he looked at this, this group of young men right there in the front row. And he said this, he said, he said, I want you young men to know, don't let anyone ever tell you that God don't love you because he do. And he thoroughly butchered the king's English. But there was one of those young men that, that pierced his heart. He was the ringleader. He was the one who was intending to uh, start the whole uh, ruckus there. And when he heard that God loved him, it pierced his heart. He gave his life to Jesus Christ and he became a pastor. And he told this story to uh, another pastor. He told him the story of his conversion. Just on hearing those words, even in that way. Don't think God don't love you because he do. And you, don't think that God doesn't love you because he does. I'm saying it properly. (laughs) He does. He loves us. How do we know he loves us? He loves us because he shed his blood. He washed us from our sins in his blood. And so it's his blood that shows us the magnitude. He washed us, or like I said, some translations read he freed us. But he did both. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoners free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood avails for me. Charles Wesley wrote that. That's the truth. So he loved us, loves us. He washed us. He freed us from our sins in his own blood. And he made us a kingdom of priests or kings and priests, but more literally, he made us a kingdom of priests to uh, his God and father. And this is the future of every believer. We are a kingdom of priests. And that's going to be the case in the, the new world that Christ will establish when he comes back. You want to know what you're going to be doing uh, when Jesus comes back? Uh, We are going to be a kingdom of priests. We're going to be the worship leaders in the new age to come. That's what the priests essentially do. They lead the worship. They lead people in the worship of God. And that is what we're going to do. We'll be showing forth the praises of the one who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light from generation to generation. And then verse seven real quickly, behold, he is coming with clouds and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. And so the universal recognition of Christ when he returns, every eye will see him. When Jesus comes back, this is amazing. If you think about it, every single person, will, everyone will see him. He will appear in the clouds, but it will be it will be seen everywhere. And simultaneously, he will be uh, in the north, and the, in the south, and in the east, and in the west. And there there won't be a single place on earth where Jesus is not seen when he returns. Every eye will see him even those who pierced him. And I think here the specific references to the nation of Israel. uh, They were the ones really who pierced him. They were the ones who turned him over to the Romans to crucify him. And this is what the prophet Zechariah said in the 12th chapter, the 10th verse. uh, God speaking through the prophet, he said, they will look upon me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son. And so uh, John is really just echoing that very thing right there. All the tribes of the earth will mourn. So Israel will mourn over the fact that they have rejected for all of these centuries their Messiah. I think the rest of the nations are going to mourn because, and, and you could translate the word "wail," because they recognize that the judgment has now come. But let me just read to you real quickly in closing what One person wrote about this. He said, Behold, he is coming. Here is the great fact unequivocally stated Christ has not gone to heaven to stay there. He will return again. Few believe this, and still fewer lay it to heart. Many sneer at the very idea and would fain laugh down the people who are so simple as to entertain it. But it is nevertheless the immutable truth of God, predicted by all his prophets, promised by Christ himself. Confirmed by the testimony of angels, proclaimed by all the apostles, believed by all the early Christians, acknowledged in all the church creeds, sung of in all the church hymn books, prayed about in all the church liturgies, and entering so essentially into the very life and substance of Christianity that without it there is no Christianity except a few maimed and mutilated relics too powerless to be worth the trouble or expense of preservation." That religion which does not look for a returning savior or locate its highest hopes and triumphs in the judgment scenes for which the Son of Man must appear is not the religion of this book and and is without authority to promise salvation to its devotees. Murmur at it, dispute it, despise it, mock it, put it aside, hate it, and hide from it as men may. It is a great fundamental article of the gospel that the same blessed Lord who ascended from Mount Olivet and is now at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, shall come from thence to judge the living and the dead and to stand again on the very summit from which he went up. This is true as Christ himself is true. That's powerful. That's the reality. Every eye shall see him, even they who pierced him. And all of the peoples of the earth shall mourn. And then the final word in the opening salutation, the lord it's like the Lord Jesus himself breaks in here. I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord. And I want you to notice this, who is and was and who is to come, the Almighty. Jesus here clearly identifies himself as the eternal God. He is just like the Father, the one who was and is and is to come, so he is as well. He is the Almighty. And so, the one who is the Almighty, the one who is the Alpha and the Omega, The first and the last letters of the alphabet, the one that everything started with and the one everything will end with. That is the one who loves us and who washed us from our sins in his blood. And thank God that he's coming back and he's going to set up a kingdom. And thank God that we are part of it and that anyone that chooses to be part of it can be by simply having their sins forgiven by their faith in him. God, help us all to do that. Lord, we thank you for these amazing truths. We thank you for this great book of Revelation. And Lord, we're excited about what you have for us in this book. And today as we've just begun to open it, and as we've begun to see the unveiling of your glory, Lord, may you just guide us through it. And may it speak loud and clear into our lives personally and into our life as a congregation in the weeks and in the months to come. And Lord, I just pray this morning if there's a single soul with us that is yet to be washed or freed from their sins through your blood, Lord, that they would embrace you today, that they would bow the knee today and confess that you are Lord. We know that one day everyone will do that. And only those who do it now receive the benefit of the blessing. So work to that end, we pray. We thank you. Amen.